going to read from Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him. That's 16 soldiers. Intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing by the church to God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shone in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And he did. And he said to him, Cast your garment about you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and knew not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second guard, they came into the iron gate which leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel, and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod, from, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a maid came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened up the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, You're mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then they said, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now the general, the normal interpretation of this portion of scripture is that this was a group of praying Thomases. They were praying for Peter's release, and when he was released, they were astonished, which revealed their unbelief. That's the normal interpretation. But if that's so, why then the miracle? Why did God do a miracle if they were filled with unbelief? I thought the Bible tells us in the book of James that when we pray, we're to ask in faith, nothing doubting, for he that wavers is a wave driven of the sea and tossed. I thought Jesus could do no mighty miracle in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Well, there may be another explanation. Perhaps they weren't praying for his deliverance. Maybe they were praying out of rationality. Remember, this was their experience. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, Stephen was a man of reputation, a young man full of the Holy Spirit. We're told that there was a shortage of people to wait on tables. The Hellenians had widows that weren't being looked after. So the disciples got together and said, it's not right we should leave the word of God to wait on tables. They had a committee meeting and chose seven men to do that job. But because Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, he couldn't be kept down. No doubt he fulfilled his duties. No doubt he mixed works with his faith. But he was out open air preaching. And the Bible tells us, as he preached, and signs and wonders followed the preaching of his word, he was confronted by contentious people who were called the Libertines. That is the biblical ACLU. Who raised their ugly head way back in the book of Acts, the Libertines. And they argued with him 
accused him of blasphemy, he was arrested. Now, no doubt, news of Stephen's arrest and the fact that he was testifying to the Sanhedrin spread like wildfire back to the disciples. I mean, this was a tremendous opportunity. This was like, this was 70 elders of Israel gathered together. Stephen was having opportunity to testify to them. What an incredible opportunity. Now, Jesus said, when they bring you before synagogues to testify, he said, don't premeditate what you should say. And it's obvious that Stephen received that mouth of wisdom that Jesus promised. Because when he speaks, nobody interrupted. He just goes and gives a history of Israel. Incredibly eloquent. Filled with the Holy Spirit. His face shone like that of an angel's. If you could have been a fly on the wall, perhaps you thought, man, this is incredible. Witnessing such an anointing upon this man. God is obviously speaking through him. Perhaps you'd think to yourself, how would he climax? Will he tell them that God loves them, has a wonderful plan for their life? Will he preach Christ crucified? And suddenly you see Stephen lift his hand and say, you stiff-necked and hard-hearted, why do you resist the Holy Ghost? Which of your fathers hasn't killed the prophets? You who are given the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. What did he say? Did he know to whom he was speaking? This was a Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. They restrained at the net to keep God's law. Who did he think he was? This young upstart, this blasphemer. And they gnashed upon him with their teeth and grabbed him and dragged him to the main gates to stone him to death. And no doubt the disciples followed, perhaps praying, Oh God, don't let this happen. Don't let them stone him to death. They could believe for a miracle. I mean, they'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. They'd seen the widow of Nain, her, her child raised from the dead. They'd seen incredible miracles that Jesus did. They touched the holes in his hands and his feet. They knew the miracle power of God. And perhaps if someone picked up stones to throw them at Stephen, they thought, what will happen? Will the stones turn to bread? Will the hands turn leprous? And suddenly, stones began pounding the body of Stephen. And God let Stephen die. And I believe it devastated the disciples. Why do I say that? Because the Bible tells us the devout men made great lamentation over Stephen. They made great lamentation over him. Time magazine told us in 1986, when they witnessed the stoning to death of an Islamic princess who had committed adultery, they said it takes 15 minutes to stone someone to death. 15 minutes for her to die. What an horrific experience to see somebody stoned to death. But to see a young man with so much potential, a young man full of the Holy Spirit being used of God in the prime of his ministry, to be stoned to death so horrifically, wouldn't be something you'd easily forget. Oh, their faith in God wasn't shaken. That was upon a rock. But their human reasoning would have been shaken to the core. Then we see from the scripture we read today that James was arrested by Herod. Easy to pray for James. This was... James, the brother of John, the one to whom Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you to become fishers of men. One of the sons of thunder, one of the inner circle, he was there at the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh Lord, deliver James! You washed his feet, Lord! God let James die. So now the disciples come together to pray for for Peter. What are they going to pray? Deliver Peter? You see, they've been... One spitting. Three times shy. I mean, if you've been bitten once, you're going to pull back. God let Stephen die. He let James die. And now Peter is taken by Herod. So what will they pray? Perhaps something like this. Lord, they've got Peter. 
Oh, they killed Stephen. They murdered James. Oh, God, be with Peter at this time. Encourage him, console him, give him courage for what he has to face tomorrow. Oh, God, be with him. You see, we assume they prayed for his deliverance. But perhaps they just prayed for his comfort. Who knows? But God did the impossible. He blinded 16 soldiers. He broke the chains. He opened the iron gate. With God, nothing shall be impossible. You see, we can't rationalize God. We can't work out what God is going to do. I say it reverently. God, the mind of God is totally irrational. You cannot work it out. Sometimes God allows death to come. Other times he breaks chains and opens iron doors. But God is never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He never says, oops. Everything he does, everything he says, has purpose. Especially in this book. Take, for instance, Peter and the number three. I don't know if you've ever studied this, but I did a study on it recently. Peter and the number three. Listen to this. Three times the New Testament relates the story of the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter suggested building three tabernacles. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus returned three times to three disciples, and when he spoke to them, he spoke to Peter. Three times, Peter denied Jesus. The three times denial of Peter is mentioned three times in three Gospels. Peter was asked three times by Jesus if he loved him. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. The Bible even tells us the time that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. It was the third hour. Peter's vision of a sheet full of animals coming down from heaven, happened three times. When Peter was called to preach to the Gentiles, three men came to escort him. In John 21, verse 14, we see something incredible happen when Jesus appeared to his disciples the third time. Let's turn to John 21, verse 14, and see what happened when, Peter spoke to Peter, uh, when Jesus spoke to Peter when he appeared to his disciples for the third time after the resurrection. And we're told here in John 21, preceding verses to what we're going to look at, that the disciples went fishing. Peter says, I'm going fishing. The disciples says, we're going too. So they went fishing. And they toiled all night and caught nothing. I know the, the feeling. Jesus stood on the shore. He says, have you caught anything? And they said, no, we haven't caught a thing. Now verse 6, he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you shall find. And they cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fish's coat unto him, for he had removed it and cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. As soon then as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid upon it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring her the fish which you've now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of great fish, and hundred and fifty and three. Although there were so many, yet the net was not broken. A hundred and fifty three fish were caught. Now I've always wondered, why does the Bible take the time to tell us how many fish we're in the net. If you like, feel free to follow me to uh, Luke 5, verse 4. I'm going to read an incident which is very similar that happened with Jesus and the disciples. Luke 5, verse 4. This is what it says. And look at the detail Scripture gives us. When he left speaking, he said to Simon, that's Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
And Simon, answering, said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fish. And the net broke. And they beckoned to their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help. And when they came and filled both the ships, they began, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all they that were with him, at the catch of fish which were taken. And so also was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Fear not, from henceforth you shall catch men. So we see in this Luke incident, there was a great multitude of fish, not just a multitude, as it says in John. The nets broke, and the boats began to sink. There were so many fish. In John, it says, there was a multitude of fish, the nets didn't break, and the boats didn't sink. So it's reasonable to assume that in the Luke incident, there were more fish. So if the number 153 was given in John merely to impress the reader as a kind of fish story, look how many fish we caught, wouldn't it have been better to take the incident in Luke because there was obviously more fish with a great multitude of fish. So it's reasonable to conclude that there's more to the number 153 than meets the eye. However, if you search for the number 153 in the Old Testament, you won't find it. That's why it perturbed me. I thought, that this, is it a Bible type? What is it? Well, by the grace of God, I think I've discovered why the Bible mentions 153. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, I have searched a number of commentaries for this interpretation I'm going to share with you. I've never found it. I've never heard anyone teach on this before. I've never heard anyone give this interpretation. So I would like you to judge it biblically. The Bible says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. If this is good, hold on to it. If it's not, throw it out and then throw the preacher out. So let me just relate what's going on in this Second Kings. Ahaziah, this is the son of Ahab, I think, fell down out of his house and injured himself seriously. So he sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether or not he would recover from the disease. And the angel of the Lord approached Elijah, the Tishbite. He said, go and meet these messengers and ask them, isn't there a god in Israel? Why are you god of Beelzebub? Why are you inquiring of the god of Ekron? Tell Ahaziah that he's going to die. So the messengers returned and they told Ahaziah what had happened that he's going to die. And he said, who, who said, who was this? And they said, he was, he was a hairy man. And he said, oh, that's, that's Elijah, the Tishbite. And we pick up the story in verse 9. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him. You man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, if I be a man of God... Then let fire come down from heaven and consume you with your fifty. And there came fire down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So fifty-one died under fire from heaven. Verse 11. And again he also sent to him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, thou said the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said to him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. The fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So another fifty-one died by fire. And he sent again a captain, a third fifty with his fifty. 
And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said to him, O man of God, I pray, let my life and the life of these 50, your servants, be precious in your sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burned up two captains of the former 50s with their 50s. Therefore, let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him and be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him. So there is 351s, which comes to 153. What happened? Two-thirds perished by fire, and one-third was saved because of the intercession of their captive. Now this is very easy to liken to the church. Jesus, according to Hebrews 2 verse 10, is the captain of our salvation. As our captain, he ever lives to make intercession for us. The Bible tells us our God is a consuming fire. He's filled with wrath. And the scriptures tell us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, that he's coming in flaming fire to take vengeance on those that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, is it biblical that there will be a final separation of church and state? That is, those who are governed by this world rather than by God. Oh, yes. Matthew 13. 47 and 48, listen to these words. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. The kingdom of God is like a fisherman's net that is cast into the sea and it gathers a multitude. And in that net, within the gospel net, are the good and the bad alongside each other. There's the foolish virgins, the wise virgins, the tears, the wheat. And we have the good fish and the bad fish. And Jesus said, things will be sorted out on judgment day. Well, could it be that only one third of the professing church will be saved? Now listen to Matthew 13, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the hole was filled. Notice Number three, once again. And this is very unusual that Jesus likened the kingdom of heaven to leaven. Because leaven was forbidden to be put into bread. God told the Jews, don't put leaven in bread. And yet Jesus likened the kingdom of heaven to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal to the whole were filled. Jesus told us in Luke 12, verse 1, that the leaven is hypocrisy. Listen to what Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, said regarding this woman and the leaven. He said, quote, this shall have its accomplishment in the destruction of the corrupt and hypocritical part of the church. See, right in the midst of God's people sit hypocrites. Hypocrites are pretenders. We hear people say all the time, the church is full of hypocrites. No, it's not. There is not one hypocrite in the church. The church is the people that love God. That's the true church. In the midst of the church are pretenders that will be sorted out on the day of judgment. There is no hypocrites in God's church. The Lord knows those that are his. The foundation of God stands sure. Well, are there other scriptures to confirm the thought that only one-third of the professing church being saved? Well, turn to Zechariah 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I'll turn my hand upon the little ones. This is a messianic prophecy. Matthew 26, verse 31, it was fulfilled when the shepherd was smitten. In verse 8, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Lord, two parts of it in it shall be cut off and die, 
but the third part shall be left in it. That's what the Bible says. And I'll bring the third part through the fire, and I'll refine them as silver is refined. Now, 1 Peter 1 verse 7 likens the church, or says the church is refined in fire, true believers. And I'll refine them as silver is refined, and will test them as gold is tested. The same verse, 1 Peter 1 verse 7, says the true church is refined as gold. They shall call upon my name and I'll hear them. The true church has called upon the name of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not those that have experimentally asked Jesus into their heart, but those who have actually called upon the name of the Lord in repentance to be saved. You don't become a Christian by, quote, asking Jesus into your heart. Salvation comes through repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Christ dwells in your heart through faith. And then scripture says, Zechariah 13 verse 9, And I'll say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. First Peter 2.10, we, quote, who were not a people, we were not a people, but now we're the people of God. Two-thirds will be cut off and one-third will be saved. Well, how can we be sure that we're not part that great multitude who will come before Jesus and cry, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Well, remember what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 12, the opening portion of Scripture. Verse 3 tells us, for some reason, these were the days of unleavened bread. Remember, Peter was sleeping in a prison. He wasn't going anywhere. He was condemned to die the next day. Death lay at the door waiting for him. The Bible tells us an angel appeared. A light shone in the prison. But notice... The light did not awaken Peter, it seems, from Scripture. So the angel smote him, smote him on the side. Then his chains fell off. He put on his shoes. He girded himself. He put on his garment. Then he followed the angel, and then the iron gate to the city opened of itself. This is a picture of true salvation. The sinner is in the prison of his sins. He that serves sin is a slave of sin. He is not going anywhere. He is a prisoner of death. He sits in the shadow of death. Death hovers. I don't know if you you realize it, but you and I are part of the ultimate statistic. Ten out of ten die. We're not going anywhere. We are condemned by God to die. People say, do you believe in the death sentence? I say, oh yes. The God of the universe, the judge of the universe, has proclaimed the death sentence upon humanity. We're all on death's road. We're waiting for death to consume us. We're sitting in a holding cell. We're sitting in a prison. We're not going anywhere. So what should we do? Well, we should preach the gospel. Just one moment. How do we save someone who is a prisoner to sin, condemned? Do we preach the gospel? I don't think so. This is why. The gospel light will not awaken a sinner to the plight of his sins. It will not show him his true state. The gospel means... Good news. How can good news awaken a sinner to his danger? Remember the angel appeared, the light shone, but Peter slept on. The sinner will remain asleep in his sins even though he hears the good news of the gospel. The gospel does not awaken. It is the law that awakens. The law of God, the Ten Commandments that bring the knowledge of sin. That's what awakens. What you've got to do is smite the sinner. Cause him some pain in his conscience to awaken him. 
then once he has a knowledge of sin, once he realizes he's condemned by God, once he realizes that hell is his just desert, then upon repentance his chains of sin will fall off. Then instead of being a pure warmer, he'll put on his gospel shoes. In fact, scripture says, the angel tells us to tie on your gospel shoes. Put them on. Make them permanent. He'll put on his gospel shoes. He'll gird himself with truth. He'll forsake deceitfulness. He'll walk a life of holiness. He'll put on his garment of righteousness. He'll follow Jesus Christ. And then the iron gate to the celestial city will open of its own accord. That's true salvation. Our churches are filled with people who have heard the gospel. They've come under the light of the glorious gospel, but they've never been smitten by the law. They're still asleep in their sins. And I meet them almost every Friday night. People who say they're Christians, but their lives do not match what they say. They say they've asked Jesus into their heart, but there's no signs of genuine salvation. Listen to what A.W. Tozer said. It is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought to some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ and have not been saved. It was A.W. Tozer, respected Bible teacher. It is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ and have not been saved. Someone once asked Jesus, will there be few saved? Jesus said to him, Strive to enter the straight gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and shall not be able. Matthew 7, 14 says, And few there be that find it. Let me say again, we must be awakened by the law before the light of the gospel can do its work. Listen to Ephesians 5, verse 14, and notice the order. Wherefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. There must be an awakening from a deep sleep so that the gospel light can save the sinner. So they can understand the cross. So we can see it as the power of God under salvation. Let me illustrate what I'm saying. I was standing on a work site. We've just had a building built for our ministry. And I was standing with one of the workmen and my son-in-law and my daughter just looking at the building just before it was completed. When a gentleman walked past my van, stopped and looked at a bumper sticker on the back window of my van. And the bumper sticker says this, National Atheist Day, April the 1st. You got it? It's, it's like a joke, isn't it? Okay, it's like a joke. National Atheist Day, April the 1st. And then it says along the bottom, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This gentleman right in front of us as we stand there, walked up to my van, looked at it, and shook his head with contempt. Now I thought, uh-oh, this could be some poor Christian whom God hasn't given the spirit of discernment of quality humor. <laughs> so I called out as he walked on. I said, that's a Christian sticker. He said, yes, I know, I'm an atheist. And stormed off. He was offended by it. When suddenly he realized he'd forgotten something from his car, so he turned around and came running towards us like they'd gone back to his car. So I called out, changed your mind. <laughs> that didn't impress him at all. He went up to his car, and while he was standing there, he called out to me, I knew a Christian who had a car accident, and he got paralyzed. 
like it was God's fault it was a car accident. He was just bitter and angry. So as he walked past me, I said to him, I can prove God's existence in two minutes. He turned to me and said, scientifically? And I said, scientifically. You see, the word science just means knowledge. I'm not too impressed with science. They're the same clowns that told me that we came from monkeys. <laughs> I really don't have much respect for science. I'll tell you why. Science is forever changing its mind. You go back 50 years and look at what science believed and compare what they believe now, and you see, that changed their mind. They cha- We've now discovered, we, uh, it's not such a, it's something else we've discovered about a certain thing. What they're saying is, we were wrong, but now we're right. But in 10 years, they'll realize they were wrong again, and they're now right this time. They're always changing their mind. But this word never changes. You can rely on it. It's an anchor of the soul. So I said, yeah, scientifically, that is, with knowledge. So I said, see that building? He says, yeah. I said, how do you know there's a builder? He says, the building. Yeah. I said, the building is proof there was a builder. You couldn't want better proof there was a builder than have the building as evidence. I said, creation proves there is a creator. Things made prove there is a maker. And then I just turned to him and said, if you kept the Ten Commandments, have you ever told a lie? He said, yeah. I said, what does it make you? He said, a liar. Have you ever stolen something? He says, yeah, what does that make you? A thief. So Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Ever done that? He said, yeah. I said, well, you're lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. Said, you have to face God on judgment day, whether you believe in him or not. And God gave you a conscience so you know right from wrong. I said, what's your name? He said, uh, uh, Spence. I said, Spence, when you cross that road in a minute, look both ways, because if a car hits you, we're talking about eternity. I'll see you later. And I left him with him. He said, you can't do that. Well, which is worse? A guy coming to the heat of conviction for a few moments as the Holy Spirit convicts him of sin, righteousness, judgment, and he trembles a little, or eternity in the lake of fire. Because if he doesn't come to a knowledge of sin, that will be his plight. And I went over to the contractor, my son-in-law and my daughter, and we just stood there and prayed that God would bring conviction upon that guy. So I don't know what your theology is, but I don't save people. It's God that saves people. And I've had the revelation that I'm not the only laborer that God has got. If I plant a seed, God will bring the increase and someone will reap down the road if we don't fade, if we keep on seeking to save that which is lost. And if God wants to save that guy, he'll save him. Why? Because the Bible says, no man can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. Salvation is the Lord. God does all the work. All he requires of us is that we're true and faithful witnesses. Now, I don't like smiting people with the law. But saints, it works. I, I was witnessing to a young guy once, two or three weeks earlier than that. I took him through the commandments. I just said, have you had a Christian background? Have you kept the Ten Commandments? He says, oh, yeah, pretty much. So I went through the commandments. And showed him how high God's holy standard is and the standard God will judge him. And I, I showed him he was condemned to hell according to God's word. If God was going to judge him by the commandments, he was going to hell for eternity. I smote him with the law. He looked at me and says, do you do this full time? I said, no. I said, no, no, I make the time because I care. You know what he said? He said, it shows. Isn't that interesting? He said, it shows. See, he could discern that my concern for him was not that he might find a happy lifestyle as a Christian. And my concern for him was his eternal welfare and he could understand why I was concerned when he heard the commandment. That God requires truth in the inward parts. And if he's hated someone, God says he's a murderer. If he's lusted, he's committed adultery in his heart. 
So he could see my motive for him was not proselytizing to get him to join a church or to have a lifestyle that would make him happier. My motive was because I was totally concerned for his eternal salvation. I said, I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to be forgiven on the day of judgment. When you stand before God, I want God to separate you into everlasting life and not into eternal damnation. We smite sinners, not because we hate them, but because we love them. That's why. Now, I've got a lovely wife. She's four foot, eleven and a half. She's the only one that's ever really looked up to me. And I don't like being away from her. And I, I, we've got an 800 number, and I regularly call her when I'm away. I was on the East Coast once. She's back in Southern California in the city of Bellflower, where we live. And I called her up. And I said, how you doing? And we had a talk. And then I said, looks like I'll be coming back tomorrow, Monday. And she said to me, I'll see you tomorrow, baby. I thought, what? You see, my wife is English stock. She was born in England. She went out from England to New Zealand, where we lived for many years, when she was six months old. So she's kind of lost her English accent. Unless she cries like a baby, you can pick it up. But English people are rather conservative. Step up a lip and all that, old chap. If you want a, a definition of impossible, go and try and start a cheerleading team in England. I mean, they're not rah, rah, rah people. That is jolly good show, old chap. That's good. So when she said to me, I'll see you tomorrow, baby, my little heart went, whoop, 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 whoop. I said, what did you say? She said, I'll see you tomorrow, maybe. Yeah, I said the same thing. I was in a mall about two weeks later. She came up to me, she had an ice cream in her hand. And she said, here, handsome. I thought, what? Here, handsome? I went, we've been married for 28 years and she's still got 20-20 vision? Here, handsome. I said, what did you say? She said, here, have some. Saints, when we look at these promises that God has given us, they're exceeding great and precious promises. We're not hearing wrongly. I mean, when God says something, it's true. We have an inheritance in the saints and light. When I die, and I often say this to crowds when I'm speaking, I'm not going to be a spook on a cloud playing some rusty harp for eternity. You know, I am awaiting God's kingdom. I'm awaiting for God's kingdom to come to this earth and his will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. I don't think it's any, some, some weird biblical prophetic interpretation to say that God's kingdom is coming to this earth. And the curse is coming off this earth that God has got brand new bodies for all those that love him. Bodies that won't be subject to fear and pain and suffering and death. And he says, I'll seal you with my Holy Spirit. I'll give you proof that what I'm saying is true. He says, how can you have proof? Well, listen, if I was Bill Gates' money lender, money giver, and I was here tonight, and I was here to give away money, and I, and I said to you, everyone here is going to get a million dollars when the service ends. And as, when the service ends. And as a token of good faith, I'm going to give you each 100,000 right now. And I came down and gave you 100,000 elapsed. Every single one of you. As you sat there and looked at the 100,000, you're going to say to yourself, this guy means it. I'm going to get a million dollars when the service ends in four or five hours. Or whenever it ends. 
The hundred dollars would be a token of good faith. And the Bible says God gives us the earnest of his spirit. He says, I'll give you a down payment. I'll, I'll rebirth you. I'll make you new on the inside. I'll give you fellowship with my Holy Spirit so that you'll know what I'm saying is true. That you're going to get everything I have promised in this word. Saints, we have a wonderful message. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. And yet so Christians share their faith. Why is it? I believe one of the reasons is this. We have lost the fear of God. When God says, do it, we don't obey it because we don't fear him. Jesus said this. Fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards can do no more. But fear him who has power to kill, kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Fear him. One of my prom, prime motivations for preaching the gospel is that I fear God. And if God says it, I do it. If he's my Lord, if he's my master, and he says, preach the gospel to every creature, I'm going to do it by his grace. I was once making a cup of tea for my, for my daughter. She was pregnant at the time. She'd been married three or four years and she was staying in her house because she was... Morning sickness is not morning sickness. It's 24-hour sickness. It goes on and on and on. Morning sickness. Anyway, she wasn't feeling well. I got up early in the morning, and I was wearing a white robe, which is biblical. Okay? And so I reached over the kettle, and as I reached over to reach the kettle with this hand, I heard an unusual sound. This was the sound I heard. And I looked down, and my whole sleeve was on fire. And then I heard another sound. It went like this. As right across my back caught fire, and then one more sound, things come in threes, I heard, and this sleeve caught fire. Now I thought to myself, as I stood there, Ray, you've got a problem. I thought, what am I supposed to do? I, I got one of those fire extinguishers for such a moment as this. And I thought back, what does it say on the extinguisher? That's right, stand six foot back and aim at the base of the fire. I got a problem. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll take the robe off. So I took the robe off and threw it on the ground. As I hit the ground, I heard whoosh, the whole thing burst into flames. And I thought, that's interesting. The makers of the robe have soaked it in gasoline so people that wear it will have an exciting life. So I learned a lesson. I learned two lessons from that incident. One, if you're wearing a white bathrobe, do not leave, lean over a naked flame. And two, a man on fire moves rather quickly. <laughs> now, saints, if you look at the book of Acts, you will see they were consumed by fire. Every move they made was made quickly. Because the fire of God dwelt in them. They had received a fire on their heads, a fire in their mouth. They knew that God had granted the message of everlasting life to dying humanity who was sitting in the shadow of death. They were provoked on. They could not but speak that which they'd seen and heard. And their lives are on the line. I mean, people killed Christians as we saw earlier on in that time. The fire, of the, God, the fire of God consumed them. The book of Acts is a blueprint of what the church should be like. People say to me, boy, you're on fire. You're really zealous. I am not. I am a normal biblical Christian. Sad to say. I've got a zeal in my heart. And, and all I am when I look at the book of Acts is a normal Christian. That's the blueprint. We have lost the message. We run around saying God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. If you really believe that, that, that your message is to tell sinners that God loves them, has a wonderful plan for their life, take a sinner by the hand, open the book of Acts, and together read of Stephen being stoned to death and his rocks 
pound the bones and flesh of this dear man of God, and as he dies horrifically, turn to the sinner and say, wonderful. And then turn the pages and watch Paul being whipped for his faith and his bare flesh is ripped off his back, turn to the sinner and smile and say, wonderful. And then give him the Bible and say, hey, study the, the word suffering in the epistles and see if you can get him to whisper the word wonderful. More than likely, say, man, I far rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin than suffer affliction with the people of God. Do you know who the first evangelist was to lead a multitude to Christ? Do you know who it was? It was Judas Iscariot. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us Judas led a multitude to Jesus. And you know what happened? That multitude fell back as soon as Jesus spoke to them. Now, modern evangelism and Judas Iscariot have much in common. Their motives are different, but the results are the same. When modern evangelism has its message, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, they lead a multitude to Jesus, and as soon as Jesus speaks to them, they fall backwards. A massive fallaway rate, a casualty rate. You see, the night on the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was there. You know what he was doing? He was cutting off ears, left, right, and center. <laughs> Zeal without knowledge. That's exactly what modern evangelism does. It takes the sword of the, two, the two-edged sword of God's word and cuts off sinners' ears. The hardest people to reach for the gospel are those we erroneously call backsliders. They are so hardened to the gospel. And I've been witnessing to an atheist via email for about six or eight months. This guy is so hardened, and after a while I got him to admit that he once gave his heart to Jesus. And he denies everything. He is so angry. He is so bitter. I wrote to him. I said, God gave you a brain. Use it. And I knew what he'd write back. He wrote back, God did not give me a brain. So I wrote back, I guess you're right. <laughs> Saints, I am so grateful that we have opportunity to preach the gospel in, in Santa Monica. We go there, I take a team, been doing it for about 15 months, every Friday night. As a priority of my ministry, I get privileged to, to speak all over the place in beautiful churches, but I would far rather preach open air. You know why? 30 minutes, an hour open air preaching, I can reach more sinners in the open air than the average church does in a year. I thank God the disciples didn't stay in the upper room and worship. They went open air. They preached open air. I mean, they could have carpeted out the... the the upper room and put a little sign saying tonight at 7 o'clock please come but no they knew sinners don't like going to church building they went out and preached the gospel to every creature as they were commanded to because the fire of God burned within their hearts and I thank God Santa Monica City gave me a license I have a permit to preach they gave me a permit to preach for a whole year but I thought that's too long a sermon so I cut it up to Friday nights but it's a wonderful opportunity not only we do the light show, but we, we take Lazarus along with us. It's such a colorful place. There's all sorts of performers there. It's a, an open promenade. There's four blocks, and it's an open mall with thousands, tens of thousands of people walk up and down every Friday night. And the way I draw a crowd is I take Lazarus with us. Lazarus is a dummy. He doesn't say much. He just lies under a sheet. And that's what draws people, because I know human nature. If I want to preach open air and I say to a crowd that are walking by, please come and listen, they won't. But what I do is put Lazarus down, cover him with a sheet and say, Stand back! Stand back! Do not come near the corpse! (laughs) 
Now, we, we, even though it's a serious thing, we do have a lot of fun. Just last Friday night, we put, we've got a, a microphone we put in the crowd. It's a heckless microphone. One of the most difficult things in open-air preaching is that crowd will come close to you and suddenly, instead of preaching to 150 people, you've got about a dozen people just shouting at you. So you've got to keep them about 20 paces back and it's very difficult to keep them back. So what we did is we put a microphone in the crowd and anyone that wants to heckle, we say, use the microphone. Or I just say, I can't hear you. Oh, use the microphone. And what I've got on my soapbox, hidden under my foot, is a cutoff switch. When I don't like what they're saying, or they won't let me preach, or they're using vulgar language, I push the button down and suddenly they're going... They've got no sound. Such a blessing. <laughs> Friday night, this pantheist gets up. You know, this is how we draw a crowd also. I say to the crowd, can anybody tell me what is the number one killer of drivers in America? Anyone tell me what is the number one killer of drivers in America? I bet you don't know. Do you know what the number one killer of drivers in America is? And I say to the crowd. Some people in the crowd say, accidents. No. Say, alcohol. No. I say, why doesn't someone say falling asleep at the wheel? And someone says, falling asleep at the wheel. I say, no. (laughs) Do you know what the number one killer of drivers in America is? Any idea? You won't believe it. See, I'm baiting you. I'm making you wait. What? What is the number one killer? Tell me, tell me. The number one killer of drivers in America is, you won't believe this. You know what it is? Trees. Now that makes you laugh, doesn't it? But it's true. Lining the highways of America are millions and millions of trees. And if you go off a road for any reason and hit a tree, the tree doesn't move, you move into the next life. I heard of five teenagers killed by hitting a tree just recently, about two or three weeks ago. Trees are the number one killer of drives America. So, save our trees. Ah, cut them all down. <laughs> Murderous things. There's a tree waiting with your name on it. Be careful of those trees. Secondly, I say to the crowd, and all the time I'm watching for the vocal people that call out, what is the most common food people choke to death on in U.S. restaurants? It's not treats. I say, what do you think? People call out steak. say, no, it's not steak. Why doesn't someone say chicken bones? Someone says chicken bones. It's not chicken bones. I say, you know what? The most common food that people choke to death on in U.S. restaurants is, you know what it is? Hard-boiled egg yolk. The yellow in the egg goes like powder. It's stuck in the throat. You can't loosen it with water. The third question I ask to draw a crowd is, what is the most dangerous job in America? You know what the most dangerous job in America is? Some people say, street preacher. No, it's not. (laughs) It's pretty close. I got a death threat Friday night. The most dangerous job in America is not high-rise bill. It's not police. They're number two. It's not a taxi driver. They're number three. You know what the most dangerous job in America is? President of the United States. There's been 41 in office and four are being killed while at work. That's a 10% chance of being killed if you're president. So think before you become president. (laughs) So all the while, I'm looking at who was vocal and who isn't. Who's got the confidence to call out in the crowd. So I turn and say, Sir, would you consider yourself to be a good person? He says, Yeah, I'm a good person. Because the Bible says every man will proclaim his own goodness. I say, Will you take the microphone? I want to give you the good test. And then I just say... Let's go through the commandments. And we go through the commandments, and that's what gets the crowd. That's what gives me opportunity to bring up the commandments and the gospel. But this man took the microphone on Friday night. He was a pantheist. Now, a pantheist says, God's in the flowers, he's in the birds and the trees. You're God, I'm God. It's kind of a new age pantheistic thing. And then he says an amazing thing. He said, 
There is no right and there is no wrong. And the second he said that, one of our team, who's a pastor who comes who got quite a lot of laborers, he jumps out of the crowd, comes right up behind the guy and steals something out of his back sack and runs off into the crowd. And gave me the opportunity to say, see, there's no right and there's no wrong, so that guy didn't steal from you, did he? <laughs> the pastor was so funny to do that. It was, it was so cool. But it's a real colourful... And then he returned what he had taken out of the guy's knapsack, believe it or not. But the place is so colourful. Let me conclude as we begin to draw to a close. On two weeks ago, I confronted a couple about their lifestyle. I said to the guy, have you ever lied? He says, yeah. So I lie all the time. He was, he was really arrogant. He, I said, have you ever stolen? He said, yeah, I'm a thief. So what? He says, we're living in fornication. We're having sex before marriage. Yeah. And it's really nasty, no contrition. This big lady grabs the microphone and she calls out, she hollers, love covers a multitude of sins. And I thought, oh, not another helpful Christian. And then she pointed at me, she said, you are a bad witness. Then she used the F word and flipped me off and left. Isn't that interesting? That was a good witness on her part. But it's a colourful place and the wonderful thing is that when I have a heckler and he's asking questions, I never feel intimidated because of two reasons. One, God's with me. And number two, I can always say I don't know. If someone asks me a question, I say, oh, I don't know the answer to that. And so if you're ever concerned that someone's going to ask you a question you can't answer, don't worry, just say, I really don't know. And make sure you don't stay in the realm of apologetical argument. The wonderful thing about the use of the law is that when you use the commandments, it takes you out of having to be an apologetical expert. You don't have to answer people's questions about evolution and all that stuff, because when you use the law and witness biblically, you're not dealing with the intellect, you deal with the conscience. You don't have to stay in the realm of arguing whether men come from apes. If you came witnessing with me every Tuesday and Friday, I go witnessing at the local courts where people are waiting to see the judge. I sit outside the court, they're always prayerful, I slide alongside them. And I begin witnessing. And I, I think probably of the last 200 people I've witnessed to, maybe the theory tale of evolution came up once. Because we don't even go near it. I say, have you kept the Ten Commandments? No. Stole it, liked it. What happens on Judgment Day? Do you know Jesus died for you? You're hidden for hell. Evolution is a non-issue. Hypocrites in the church are a non-issue. When a guy finds himself standing against a wall with ten great cannons pointed to him, he's not concerned about other people when he sees his own danger. He's concerned, how can he get out of the sights of those ten great cannons? And so you get a hold of this teaching. Experiment with it. Realize you don't have to be an expert. Stay in the realm of conscience, not intellect. And realize this also. If you're fearful of teaching, uh, fearful of open-air preaching, or fearful of even being a witness of Christ, realize this. If I pushed you into the heat of battle, holding onto a feather duster, you're going to be fearful. But if I issued you with ten great cannons and you stand behind those cannons and let the cannons intimidate and scare the enemy, you're going to have great courage because your courage is in your weapons. And when you stand behind those ten commandments, they do all the work, saints. Really, I'm not a brave person, but I've got confidence in my God and I know the weapons of a warfare not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now let me make no bones about it. I'm here tonight because I want to fulfill the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. I want to be a part of that. Luke 10, verse 2. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray thee therefore, the Lord of the harvest, he would raise up laborers. I want to see you raised up as a laborer. 
I want to see you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And if you've never done that, if you've never said, Oh God, let compassion swallow my fears. Help me to redeem the time. Help me be a true and faithful witness. I want you to do that tonight. I want God to raise you up and put a courage in your heart, put a vision in your heart. And even if you don't, preach open air. But you begin giving out tracts and just leave them lying around. Do it. I know that none of you as Christians would ever walk past a house that is burning with a family in it that are asleep. You couldn't just ignore them. You wouldn't even stand there and pray for them. You would run in and awaken them with every ounce of energy you've got. You would holler, come out of that place, come out of that place. Well, that is the issue that we face as Christians, and multitudes of Christians. Something like 95% of professing Christians sit in pews where the house of the sinner is burning and they don't even have an alarm in their heart to awaken them. So let our conscience be tender tonight. Let us be open to, to God's voice to the challenge that he gives us from his word. Let's bow in prayer as we close, shall we? Father, tonight I look to you to, to confirm what you want to confirm of what I've said tonight within the hearts of the hearers. Father, I pray, Lord of the harvest, raise up labors. Touch ones tonight. Give us wisdom in all we do. Give us a burden for the lost. Give us a concern for those who are sitting in the shadow of death. Let us see the moral obligation that we're in debt to all men because of what you've done in our lives. Saints, I, I, I sanctify this front of this building as an altar to God tonight. God is speaking to you tonight. For any reason, I want you to sanctify your heart. Just come to the front of this building, kneel down, and say, God, please do a work of grace in my heart. Give me courage to be true and faithful in my witness. You just get up while I'm speaking, without the aid of music. Come to the front and let God do a wonderful work in your heart.